Father, we just want to come to you and thank you for the truth that we've been able to declare to you and declare of you, God, that these songs that we sing are not just because they're catchy melodies, but because they are um, truth from your word, and we thank you for those who have penned these words, and that we can just sing out our praises to you, God, using the gift of music. We thank you for those who have chosen the songs that uh, we've sung to you, God. We pray that you are glorified in all of it, and we ask that the, the worship um, not just flow through the music, but continue through your spoken word. As we study it together, as I teach of it, may you uh, just be present in all of it, God, that your Holy Spirit would just um, be our teacher and that you would guard our minds from any error, that you would protect us from that, that only the essence of your truth would be what we would ingest here. As we look to your word to nourish us, God, to sustain us, to complete us, we just pray that we are faithful to it and it would be divided rightly. And we just thank you for this gathering of, of believers. Thank you for the fellowship of believers. And we pray that our joy would be made even more complete by our study of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And all right, you may be seated. and Take out your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the book of 1 John. We're just now beginning our study in this very important epistle, and we'll be going on this journey together through 1 John, and then we'll go into 2 and 3 John as well. We'll look at them as a, as a work together, a contiguous work. But this morning, I want us to come back to a couple of verses that Wes brought us into last week, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to read verses 3 through 4 as well. First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Over the course of the week, I've read through 1 John and just trying to get a sense of the overarching themes of the book and then come back to try and drill down to some of the details that we find in these individual verses. And I want to remind you all to be Bereans as we study the scriptures together. Remember the noble-minded Bereans that were commended as such by Paul and Silas because they just didn't take their word for it. They went to the scriptures as the, the source to prove that the things that they were hearing were so. And we encourage you to do that here as our, in our church, and we often remind you of that, because we're not just going to go through the four verses and read them, and then we end our service. There's going to be a lot of my words that are interspersed throughout in my study of this. Now, Wes set us out last week with the first couple of verses and brought out that one of the things that John is refuting is the false religion that is called Gnosticism. And I'm going to pick up there with John's refutation that Jesus did not come in the flesh. That's what the Gnostics would try and teach, that he did not come down in physical form. And Gnosticism involved the idea that flesh was inherently corrupt and therefore Jesus didn't really come as God in the flesh since he would have been corrupted if he actually had to take on flesh. And that was their teaching. And we're going to go into a little bit more detail about that more towards the end of this study. 
Excuse me, but that was the premise of Gnosticism. But John, and not just John, but many of the others, you know, Peter and Paul and James and all those who wrote, uh, would, would challenge this argument of Gnosticism, this false religion, because the gospel clearly tells us that God became flesh for us in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 14, if you want to thumb back to the, the gospel of John, I'll give you some time to get there and just kind of hold your place because there's going to be a lot of parallels between the gospel of John and the letter of 1 John. So make your way back to the very first chapter of the gospel of John, chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 14. You're going to hear this verse maybe a couple of times in this teaching, but John 1, 14 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth that's john chapter 1 verse 14 and then we come back to the letter of john the epistle and he starts out that which was from the beginning sounds very familiar with the beginning of the gospel of john and he's saying here that jesus is the one who was from the beginning. And I think Wes brought us to Colossians uh, during his intro into this uh, book last week, where in Colossians it says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And when we think about firstborn, we might think in our minds that he was the first one that God created. But that is not what it's saying there. The firstborn, if you go back to the Greek for that word, it means that he is first in rank. And we know Jesus Christ as believers. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is first in rank over us. And he has authority over us. And we subject ourselves to his supremacy. So really when it says firstborn of all creation, he was preeminent there with God in creation. He was God. And he has now come to us in the flesh, revealed himself to us. And so he is first in the rank And this is the one who we call king of kings, the one that we call Lord, now come down in the flesh. And there were those that were trying to say that he didn't, that Jesus did not come in the flesh. And that was mainly the Gnostics in John's day. But we will see later on, um, as we kind of apply this to ourselves and to our culture today, how Gnosticism is still very prevalent and alive. There were mountains of evidence, though, uh, concerning both Jesus' deity and his humanity. And remember, in his earthly ministry, he had in his company many men and many women who were walking alongside of him, who had seen him, who had heard him, who had gazed upon him, and who had touched them with their own hands. In John's gospel, he describes the event with Jesus on the cross, having the spear thrust into his side, and the blood and the water pouring out of his side. And this was not a modern-day hologram that, G- that John was witnessing. This was a living Jesus in human existence, dying the death of, for us sinners. He proved he was God by overcoming the grave, and he rose again victoriously three days, days after he was placed in the tomb. And from the beginning of John's epistle, he is going to be driving in this key point. He does not take any time for a greeting. I think you've noticed that, but he gets right into it. That which was from the beginning. Let's 
dispense with all pleasantries, and I'm going to launch right into this because this is a very important matter that we get this right, that Jesus did come in the flesh. He came as a man, but did not leave his deity behind. He was still God. We often say he was fully God. He was fully man. And the Holy Spirit, through John, presents us with the best form of evidence that someone can have in a case, and that is to have eyewitness testimony. John, the other disciples, and many other eyewitnesses who were there during Jesus' earthly ministry, they became eyewitnesses to everything that Jesus said and did. And having eyewitness testimony in a case is one of the most difficult to discredit, and especially if there is more than just one who was an eyewitness. We know that there were many. When uh, Paul writes, I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says he, he delivered to us as a first importance that which he received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to five hundred. So how many does it take for you to believe this account? There were many We have the account after account of those who actually walked with him, ate with him, and touched him. And here we are provided by John four evidences that he gives us in verse 1. So come back to it with me. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So they heard They had seen, they had looked upon, and they had touched. Almost every sense is brought in. I mean, he doesn't discuss smell, but he engages all the other senses here. You have seen him, is what he says first, or he says you heard him. We're going to come back to that. But the one thing that he has seen him, we have seen him, that means to have put eyes upon him. Now, we can have people say to us that, you know, I had a sighting of Bigfoot, and, you know, it's just a, a casual glance, and they don't really have gone any further than that. It was just a glimpse. And I've even had some who are involved in false religions come and say, well, do you think it was more that how we say, oh, I see, like it's just maybe an epiphany in our minds, that that could be what it's talked about here. Well, John goes further to be sure that nobody will say this, that, oh, I just had a sighting of Jesus and that's all. He says, we have looked upon him. We have seen him and we had looked upon him. And if you were to do a word study and go into the Greek of this, it means that they had gone beyond the seeing, but they had gazed upon them. They had looked intently upon him. They had studied him. You know how it is, even with, with our spouses, we get to know them, we, we look upon them, we, we have studied them, we know just about everything there is to know about them. So there could be no question for John and anyone else who had been with Jesus that he was a real person. And it says that they had heard him as well, heard his teachings. Wouldn't that have been an amazing thing, you know, to be there and the, during the uh, Sermon on the Mount, just hear some of Jesus' teachings, his parables, They had conversations with him. They probably heard him laugh. They heard him get very serious. We hear him get very serious in his word. But I would imagine that um, those that were present when he cleared the temple court and threw over tables would definitely tell you that he had came in the flesh, right? They got to see and hear him that day, not the gentle Jesus, meek and lowly. They got to see him really take care of, of some serious business in his father's house. They likely heard Jesus cry, maybe at the tomb of Lazarus, as if the seeing, and, and maybe also at the, the Garden of Gethsemane, he, there's a place, I think it's in 
Luke or Matthew 9 where he laments over Jerusalem. He cries for his people. And lastly, John says they touched him. They touched him. As if the seeing and hearing were not enough eyewitness testimony, the fact that their flesh touched his, I think just would seal the defense once and for all. I mean, there is 100% certainty that Jesus was there in human form. This was not just those who walked and talked with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Remember, he healed many, and there were many times in his healing that he touched him, and that they touched him, and he touched them. Look at Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. So we take accounts from God's word to see where he physically touched people. Maybe we, we don't even have to take John's word for it here, but look at Mark 8. And here is the healing of a blind man in verse 22. Mark 8, 22. And they came to Bethesda, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. If you were to go and to take the account of this blind man, don't you think he would say, yes, he's real. <laughs> he was in human form. He touched me. Jesus was God. Some of the evidence there that he was God is he healed. He also forgave sins. He came down to his creation in the flesh. He was from the beginning and before creation. All these things that we find that are true of him. Coming back, I'm going to read verse 1 again. We're going to go into verse 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And John uses the word, word, okay? And he uses that a lot. He also uses the word life. A lot in his epistle and also in his gospel he will use darkness and light comparison a lot as we walk through this together um, but these are just some of the the main uses of words that John will have for us and when he says the word of life John is speaking of Jesus Jesus we know to be the word at the beginning of John's gospel hopefully you held your place there if you want to go back to John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now he's telling us this, this message of his is concerning the Word of life. This is about Jesus and there are two Greek words for the word, word. Kind of gets confusing when you have to use that. I wish there was another word for word so I could describe this better. So hopefully you'll be able to understand this as I present it. So two Greek words for word. And one of them is the logos, which is what is used here in the epistle of John. And then also what we read there in the gospel of John. And then the other Greek word that is used is rhema. That's another word that Greeks have for word. And so to understand word, we need to really punch into the Greek a little bit deeper. 
And as it pertains to logos, which is the word we're dealing with here, Strong's Concordance says this. Now remember, this is not scripture. This is how Strong interprets it. But I, so I have it in quotes here, coming directly from that literature. It says, a word, yet not in grammatical sense, equivalent to vocabulum, the mere name of an object, but language, a word which, uttered by the living voice, embodies a conception or idea. And so that is how Strong's interprets the Logos word. And then one Greek lexicon, again not scripture, states it this way. Denotes the essential word of God, Jesus Christ, the personal wisdom and power in union with God, his minister and creation and government of the universe, the cause of all the world's life, both physical and ethical, which for the procurement of man's salvation put on human nature in the person of Jesus the Messiah, the second person in the Godhead, and shone forth conspicuously from his words and deeds. So coming back now to John's epistle when he says concerning the word of life, if we were to choose the definition that Strong's provides and think of that Logos word being something that is uttered by a living voice and embodies a conception or idea, then that conception would be that the word who is Jesus is God's communication or embodiment of life to us. In Colossians, I remember one of the translations there uh, as it describes Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man is that Jesus Christ has exegeted God to us. He has come and explained God to us by coming in human form. God, in essence, communicating himself to mankind. Another name that is used in Scripture for Jesus is Emmanuel, and it means God with us, right? Out of Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, just a little further into the passage that we read earlier from the Gospel of John, so if you're there, um, I brought this, this same Scripture verse in at the, the intro, and that's, John 1.14, and that word, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So I think it should be clear that the word, the Logos word, is Jesus. And then John says, the life was made manifest. And if you make something manifest, that means to reveal it. And as it pertains to word of life here that we can refer to now, John chapter 5, verse 26. So if you're there in John, the gospel of John, I think it further explains when John says the life was made manifest. John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is the eternal life. This is speaking of our salvation. If you look ahead in that same chapter of the Gospel of John, go to verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So this is the life that John is saying was made manifest to us. Let's go now to verse 3 and 4. Verse 3 and 4, 1 John chapter 1. 
That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So here in 3, John provides the evidences again, right? That which we have seen, that which we have heard and John desires that people know what they have witnessed and that requires a telling forth or as he calls it a proclaiming those things that we have seen, that we have heard, the one that we have touched, this is the one that we are proclaiming to you. Having seen Jesus and heard him should settle the argument that Gnostics would make about his only being some kind of spirit that didn't possess a body of flesh. So why would they continue to propagate this false teaching? And we can only speculate, and then when we speculate, that can somewhat get us into dangerous waters. All right, so let's... Um, Let's just keep that in mind. We don't want to enter into false teaching ourselves as we speculate about why Gnosticism arose among the, the time, you know, Asia Minor was considered like the melting pot of a lot of false religions. Gnosticism wasn't the only one of them, so there could have been a number that were, were being countered here in John's teaching. But if biblical scholars are correct, and John wrote this letter somewhere around 90 AD, then John was an old man at this time. And this had been written around 50 years after Jesus had passed, after he was crucified and after he had risen from the grave. So you have a duration, potentially, of about 50 years here. Also remember that around AD 70 is when Jerusalem was destroyed, so that had already happened as well. And many had probably thought that Jesus would have returned by then. Doubt and impatience could have led to you know, musing and philosophizing regarding the deity and the nature of Christ and causing a wandering away from the scriptures and from the truth and began to kind of make up their own stories concerning Jesus. So something we should know about ourselves is that if we continually give in to our flesh and we're unrepentant about it, we will find ways to justify our actions. And isn't that the way of our flesh? And all the enemy has to do is to plant that seed of doubt. So you can think about 50 years from Christ resurrecting to now John writing this letter, this 50 years that some had to philosophize and think things through, departing from Scripture and coming up with their own forms of religion and trying to explain and trying to justify. But remember, just that doubt is all it takes it started in the garden in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, and here's the doubt statement. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat any tree in the garden? And I can just think about the origination of, of a false religion kind of starting with that. Did scripture actually say that Jesus came in the flesh? We have very clear evidence, but if we, again, if we don't go to our scriptures to prove what we're hearing is so, we're entering into dangerous territory. And we are all going to be tempted to sin, and if we aren't continually tuned into what God has actually said in his word, then we can be easily deceived. In James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
In contrast to that, if we are striving to walk in the Spirit, we're continually to study our scriptures and to go to God in prayer, then when we do sin, we should certainly feel the conviction of that sin, knowing that we had done wrong, knowing that we have grieved the Spirit of our Lord and Savior. And then following that should come confession and should come repentance. And that's that part of that progressive sanctification that the Holy Spirit is working in all of us. Paul will say in Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And when we attempt to build a false ideology or religion to try and fit our desires to satisfy our sins, it will take us further away from God rather than drawing you near to Him. I could see how if I am yielding continually to my sin and walking in my flesh that I could easily sign on for Gnosticism, you know, right, and not even really know it. It deceptively promises the best of both worlds. It teaches a philosophical dualism that taught that matter was inherently evil and spirit was good, and they would accept some form of belief in Christ's deity, but then deny his humanity. And to the Gnostic, Jesus could not have taken on a physical form since all matter to them was evil. And this caused the Gnostic to be indifferent to moral values and to ethical behavior. And does this not sound like what many in the world have bought into today? To them, the body was merely the prison in which the spirit was incarcerated. And therefore, sin committed in the body didn't have any connection to or effect on the spirit. And this is a have your cake and eat it too type of doctrine. There is no forsaking of sin and repentance with this religion. And that is why John is coming against this so strongly. That's why he dismisses with all the pleasantries at the beginning. He's got to attack this at its root. We'll read uh, next Sunday in, in verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, if we have, say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Don't be tempted away by this in any form. Gnosticism, as I mentioned earlier, is still alive today. It just may take on different forms in our society. Many modern and progressive churches teach something that is very similar to this. Rather than talking about sin at all, sin and repentance, they skip over the consequences to this. They don't speak of God's wrath. In fact, the song we just sang in Christ alone, when we say, but on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, they will sing that song, but they will totally eliminate that verse for fear that they might offend someone or they would appear somehow intolerant. And so it leaves people feeling comfortable in their sin. Even teachers and leaders in the church are living openly sinful lifestyles and everyone is okay with it. If they are doing it, then I will too, those in the congregation, and this just shouldn't be. And another book that John wrote is the book of Revelation and he addresses there seven churches to whom he is writing. And of those seven churches, only two are commended by the Lord, and that's the church of Smyrna, I believe, in Philadelphia. The rest were deserving of some form of rebuke for having allowed worldliness and false doctrine to come in and infiltrate the church. And when we begin to arrive at a place where we are tolerating sin, then we are devalu- devaluing, if not totally discrediting, the eternal work of Jesus on the cross or rather the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. And that is one of the main dangers of Gnosticism, of any religion really, but if Jesus were not truly man as well as truly God, then he suffered and died, 
then he could not have been an acceptable substitutionary sacrifice of sin if we don't believe that he was fully God and fully man. And modern day forms may go to the point of believing in Jesus' deity and incarnation, but ignoring or affirming sin within the church is in essence to be practicing this. And the desire of John was that those who are reading this would believe in their testimony, that everything we say of Jesus is real. We can be certain of it. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Let's think about what he's saying there, where we can have fellowship with one another. His desire is that they would come into the fellowship of believers in the truth, not in some twisted form of the truth, but in the truth as presented in the scriptures. As a church, we cannot have fellowship with one another unless we hold to the same doctrines of Jesus Christ. And there are essentials that we must hold to. And you're gonna find other churches that worship a little bit differently than we do. Uh, there's churches here in Carlsbad and don't, don't do things like us, just like personalities. You know, we may have different personalities as a church, but there are some core doctrines that we must hold to. One of them is his eternality that he was from the beginning. Another is that he was fully God. He did not leave his deity in heaven and then come down here and, and just become man to live a, a man's life, but he retained his deity and he lived also as a man. He was tempted in all things as we are, as the book of Hebrews tells us. And then also his death, his atoning death, and his resurrection. Some core things that we have to hold to. And those are things that we can fellowship around. There were those that professed a true faith in Jesus Christ, and then there were those who professed Christ, but not the true Christ. And those of you who participated in the study, the study Sunday evening, uh, last Sunday evening, called the Foundations of Faith, we learned what this Greek word for fellowship means. And the Greek word is koinonia. And in a simple form, it means that it is the participation in something that we have in common. A participation we have a common savior, we have a common faith in Jesus Christ, but if we have some really askew ideas about Jesus that are unbiblical, then we cannot have true fellowship. We cannot participate or fellowship around an idea that is contrary to what scripture tells us about Jesus. And if you don't believe in the reality that Jesus came in the flesh and that he did not leave his deity behind, then there is no commonality that we have in that fellowship. Because as John is saying here, our fellowship is not just with one another. It's not just talking about the weather or talking about what we had for breakfast. He said it's founded in a relationship with Jesus Christ and thus we are enjoined in the triune fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So it goes beyond just us sharing in a conversation with one another about things we both like, but it is also sharing in that oneness that we have in Christ and the foundation of our faith in Him. We can't just say around this that we agree to disagree about this. We can part ways and still be civil, but Christian fellowship cannot really be had if we don't hold to these true doctrines of Jesus Christ. In verse four, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This message of Jesus having come to dwell with us bodily is news that is intended to bring us joy. A joy that is complete conveys a full satisfaction. 
that one can know by their testimony that Jesus was exactly who the scriptures said he would be and there is no lack in the Lord. The joy that he gives us is fully satisfying. What greater joy can we know than to realize that God maintained his deity but came to us in human form, that he brought to us our salvation. In John's gospel, we find these hope-filled words from our Savior. Chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And I think some translations say that your joy may be complete, as John is writing here. If you've been with us these past few Sundays, you've probably noticed that we're not going to break any speed records going through the epistle of John together. Uh, and I don't think we should. Last couple of Sundays, um, Ray and Wes led us into the introduction to this letter, and we are going to take our, our time with Scripture. We want to be intentional about it. And last week, Wes aptly ended his message with our starting this letter of John being like a journey that we are going on together. And we're going to find some really challenging and convicting, uh, tough subject matter as we walk with, through this together. And we should be challenged by the scriptures. We should come expecting the scriptures to challenge us, to help us to evaluate our heart. You know, we must judge ourselves. And if there be anything there that needs to be confessed, ask that he bring that out in us so that we can confess it. And when we intentionally choose not to skip over anything, then we get the fuller, more complete picture. And I would say that we should even consider this a journey of joy together as we go through John so that our joy may be complete. Joy in growing more in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior and what he has done for us so that we might have eternal life in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that your word is truth to us and it isn't a word that was once spoken, but it is a word that continues to speak. And as we open up your scriptures, I pray that we view it as that, that becomes alive and active to us, Lord, and pierces to the division of soul and spirit of joint and of marrow and discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. This is exactly what it does to us, Lord. We want to just approach it intentionally in our daily lives that we would never forsake your word for some really catchy doctrine that, that sounds good, but just helps us to be comfortable in our sin. And so we feel like we can just go out and live our lives as we, as we want to, God, but we want to align ourselves with your truth. I pray as you infuse your truth into us, God, that we just become more and more like you, that we strive after holiness and righteousness, that we seek first the kingdom of God and that all these things are added to us. God, we just thank you for uh, just this glimpse into John that we received today, and we look forward to this journey of joy ahead of us as we learn more about you and your intentions for us as your creation. And thank you for calling those of us to be your children. And I pray, God, if one here has not experienced just that saving work of your salvation, that maybe today you have done something in this word to, to prick their heart and to begin to grow them in understanding, Lord, and to renew them and to cause a rebirth in them to happen. And Lord, we just give it all to you and we ask that you be glorified in all of it. And we thank you just for a, everything that you've worked into our service today, Lord, through the music, um, through the testimony of uh, missionaries that are out there in the field doing your service, God, to the children's message, to the word that was just now brought to us. And we pray that it's all of you and none of us, God. 
And we pray that you just continue with us as we sing this last song to you, that it just ring forth of hearts that are just um, wanting to express in sincerity their love and adoration of you and just thankfulness for all, of, all that you have done. God, we give you the glory and the praise, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.